there's that sick theme song again. <laughs> it never gets old, dude. Never gets old. Um, we need to release a single. Yeah, no doubt. I, I, I honestly, when I first heard that song, and I, I was like, "This is a Zappa song." Holy cow! This doesn't sound anything like. And then, of course, it's bookended by two parts that are very Zappa. Yes, it's the least Zappa sounding thing ever. It sounds like the, the chords sound like they could have been written by Taylor Swift. Yes, that. No, no that, offense to Taylor, of course. That song is called "It Might Just Be a One Shot Deal," which is a great name for a song. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows our, what he was talking about? Ten bucks. It was about sex. Yes, that's our uh, that's our take on it, of course. Well, um, we're back, episode five of the backstory, and today's song is pretty awesome because I honestly thought we were coming here today to discuss. Uh, this song, and I, I thought I knew who had written it. I thought it was a Harry Nilsson song covered again in the 90s by Mariah Carey, but <laughs> my show host here informed me that, nope, you were wrong. It's actually a Badfinger song. So it has been covered twice and made famous three times, I guess. I guess it was a hit or charted three times, but we'll get to the bottom it, of that in just a second. It's actually been covered by what ASCAP estimates as 180 different artists. I read that. I read that. <laughs> there was some guy, some solo guy artist in the 80s, 83, made it famous. Yeah, I, I've, Again. I've, not real pay, I've not really paid attention to any of the various cover versions beyond the Nilsson version, which is what I consider to be yeah. the, the gold standard. It's the best, in my opinion. It's the gold standard, too. So anyway, the song is Without You, and... This song is amazing because it's a ballad that has, it, it is very dynamic. I feel like it is very uh, sensitive and soft in the beginning, and it just kind of erupts in the chorus into this heartbreaking, um, just emotional crying out. Like you can just feel the emotion in the vocals and the vocal delivery. Um, and it's, you know, it's just an amazing song. But the crazy, the real crazy thing about this song is, all of the heartache behind the scenes. Yes, the the the, the whole story behind this song is uh, the the song itself, and also the story of the two guys who wrote it. Uh, so that's that's going to end up taking the bulk of this this uh, podcast is the story of Badfinger, which is uh, uh, you. It's nothing less than a tragedy. So let's since there's I have I've put on my iPad three versions of the song, the three most famous versions for sure. So. I'm thinking let's let's just start with the original the the Badfinger one. Do you think or she think we should start with the... I think we should start with Nilsson okay. so that we know so that we hear the song the way the world really experienced it exactly. because because this is this is what really gripped the world. Yeah, and you know I remember when I heard uh Coconut. What movie was that in? Um Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs. And I went to go find that song and I learned that that was Harry Nilsson. And then I heard a few other songs on that record and was like, oh, wait, this is that guy, too? I mean, talk about an album that has every song, like, is a different style. Yeah, Nilsson Schmilson from 1971 is uh, uh, just an, it's an unbelievably eclectic record. Yes. And uh, hugely successful. So many different sounding songs. Coconut, Jump Into the Fire, used in Goodfellas. This song, um... There's one other one in the uh, Gotta Get Up in yeah, the Yeah, Gotta Get Up. There's and a, then, then there's the other one, uh, Let the Good Times Roll. Yeah, yeah. I had no Which idea. Which is a cover. Yeah, also. yeah, just insane. What yeah. a crazy album. So here he is, about to drop. Um, I mean, the, I don't know how big, he hits these high notes. The big it's just, bomb of the chorus. Yeah. <laughs> So Jeff Emmerich recorded this? Uh, I think Emmerich was an engineer on it. Uh, it was produced by Richard Perry. Yeah. Um, Is that and then, Richard and, Perry? Good dude, bad dude, douchebag? Uh, what? Uh, I, I know him mainly for his work with, with Nilsson, but... Uh, I've, heard, I, I've heard that he's not that cool with that. Yeah, I've, I've heard some whispers about that, too, but yeah. I think that... that <laughs> a lot of, he's a responsible lot of big, for this. A lot of big-time record producers could uh, fall into that category. What other skins on the wall did Richard Perry have? Oh, God. Besides driving Indy cars. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't really remember all the stuff he produced. 
need to do my research better on, on, on Richard Perry. So McCartney once called this song the killer ballad of all time. Yes, this was high praise from the greatest. <laughs> yeah, that, that vocal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, McCartney was quoted as calling it the killer song of all time. Maybe maybe not the best choice of words, as we will come to, yeah, <laughs> to learn yeah. later. And it's uh, the the associate. And I I feel bad even laughing about it because it is a, a, a tragic story. But yes, yeah, so so McCartney is a major player in the story as well. So we really, in order to get to the bottom of this, we have to dig deep on the band Bad Finger. Um, because ultimately this podcast is going to be the story, the backstory of Badfinger. So two guys in Badfinger wrote the song, Tom Evans and Pete Ham, who were uh, the guitarist and bassist, uh, both kind of co-frontmen of Badfinger. Where in the in the uh, timeline of Badfinger did this song get written? Was it before very, or after their hit? Very early on. Okay, um, so early. So, so just to give a little bit of backstory on Badfinger, they were a Welsh band. They uh, signed by the Beatles record label. Yes, it, basically they were discovered by Mal Evans, who was the Beatles' personal assistant. Okay. Mal, who played various percussion and and. Mal Evans is a big player. He's he's a, a bit player, but he's he was a big big part of the Beatles' career. He was there with them from day one, and he was there all the way to the end, um, re- really as a personal assistant. But he was one of their best friends. Anyway, Mal was the one who discovered them and saw them playing in a club when they were a band called the Ivies. They were uh, they were just a fledgling band from Wales, Mal saw them and told the other Beatles about them because the Beatles were looking to sign bands to their brand new Apple Records label in 1968. Right. right. And they were called the Ivies. And I don't know if it was McCartney himself who who signed them, but either way, Mal It Evans, wouldn't surprise me, man. Mal it Evans, seems like his kind of band, just well, their songs. Well, what he did do was he gave them their first hit. So they were... They came to Apple... It was determined before they even made their first record at Apple that they would change the name of the band because they all agreed that the Ivies was too trite yeah. and no, yeah. nobody really liked the band name. So they they chose Badfinger, which was a reference to the working title of a song McCartney and Lennon had written called With a Little Help from My Friends. Yeah. The original working title of that song was The Badfinger Boogie. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> and so somehow that came to their attention and somehow the label... Uh, and the band agreed that Badfinger would become their new moniker. Yeah. And McCartney, right out of the gates in 1969, in very early 1969, wrote a song called Come and Get It and decided that it was going to be Badfinger's lead single. Um, They were in the process of making a record which became the soundtrack to the movie Ringo was filming at the time called The Magic Christian with Peter Sellers. So Badfinger's first record was called Magic Christian Music, and it was just a bunch of songs they had recorded for their own album that wound up being in this film. Yeah. But the big lead single of all of it was Come and Get It. And McCartney had written it and demoed it, and it's a, it, there's a demo version of it on the Beatles anthology, which McCartney went in in a three-hour session. and Or no, it was like a one-hour session where he just went around the room and played all the instruments himself and then gave it to Badfinger and said, do it exactly like this, and it's a hit. And they kind of balked at that. They were like, well, dude, come on, we want to do our own thing. And McCartney said, no, 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 I'm producing this song, and you have to do it exactly the way I say. And so they did, begrudgingly, and then, sure enough, it did become a hit, and that was the springboard that put them on the map. Okay, now, let's just take a time out. You and I were in a band... <clears throat> called Olospo back in the day. <laughs> you're gonna, and let's you're just gonna say, go there. Well, let's just say uh, let's just put let's let's say that who would you say back in our day was like kind of our idols, like like the band that we were aspiring to be. Oh well, we were certainly trying to be Fish. Okay, you know? so let's say that Fish assigned us. To I was probably jump. more wanting to be Pink Floyd, and but, that's cool. You know, but, that's but, cool. But, but that was we were certainly trying to inherit. The jam band throne. Yes, <laughs> and it, let's just pretend that back then, you know, Fish, when we started the band, or during our time, they took a hiatus, 
And let's say they had started Jump Records, which they ended up doing, but and they signed Olospo. And we had all these songs we were ready to record because you wrote a shitload and Britt wrote a ton of songs. And so let's say Trey comes and says, here's a song we never recorded, but it's a goodie. And you're going to record this just like that. How would you have taken that? Would you I, have balked at that too? I, or would you have been like, we just got signed by Fish I think and we're going to do whatever the we circumstances, say? I would have absolutely respected his genius. And I would have said, oh, uh-huh. we, okay. And I would have probably grumbled about it behind the scenes at the bar or something, but yeah, I mean, insane. I don't see, I don't see to me that the when, Beatles sign you, the Beatles, right? And well, you and, would and, be like, and the thing dude, is, we don't but, want your song. Well, but they were not. I don't think they refused. I <laughs> think course, they just but, kind of grumbled about it a little bit and yeah. said, "Oh, we kind of want to do our own thing." And McCartney said, "No, no, I promise you, if you do it like this, it's going to be big." God. And he was right. Of and course, the song is insane. The, the and funny it thing though like is that too. it was not their biggest hit and they were writing some great songs pete ham and tom evans were both really strong songwriters pete ham especially uh pete pete's material wound up being uh i i don't want to say the best but but certainly the stuff that resonates the most with me and and uh over time pete had some some huge ones yeah badfinger uh during their lifetime, had four huge hits, Come and Get It, which was McCartney composed. But then Pete Ham wrote No Matter What, Day After Day, and Baby Blue, all of which are classics. Yeah. They're classics. And they were all successful singles at the time, too. Yeah. yeah. So think of all the money he would have gotten after Breaking Bad. Yeah, exactly. God, it's so, just so anyway, tragic. anyway, anyway, the, the whole story comes to a horrible ending, but we will address that shortly first we should talk about how this song came into play without you uh appeared on their second record which is called no dice from 1970 and it was composed partly by pete ham and partly by tom evans it was two different songs pete ham had written a song uh oh god i think the title i think the working title of it was like if it's love or when it's love or something, it sounds yeah. very Van Hagar. Yeah. But it, uh, but he had written this beautiful verse, but then he had a chorus that he wasn't particularly happy with. And I've heard the demo. It's not a bad chorus, but it's not the chorus. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But his verse is really, really strong. Now, meanwhile, Tom Evans had done the reverse of that. Tom Evans had written this monster chorus. And it was, I Can't Live, was the name of the song. and But he had a verse that he wasn't very happy with. So at some point... It's a classic day in the life sort yes, of... Yes, exactly. So at some point, this was around 1969, before they made the second album in 1970, they married the two songs together and decided to join them. Yeah. And it became uh, what could be argued is one of the very first power ballads, uh, this big, heavy, melodramatic ballad. But funny enough, they didn't like it. Badfinger did not like... They, they, they thought it was a good song, but they were really nervous and very tentative about how they might produce it in yeah. the studio and how they might uh, perform it. Uh, Tom Evans said... He, he was quoted as saying that he couldn't get himself to sing it with any real conviction because he was too worried about it. Yeah. They just felt it was too schmaltzy and too corny. Those were the words they used to describe right. what they thought their version was. Right. So when you hear the Badfinger version... Can we you, listen to that real yes, quick? Yes, we can. You can yeah. hear that they tried to blues it up a little bit, and they tried to do... They tried to do some things with this it. This is the first time I've ever heard this, actually, because, yeah. again, you just informed me last week <laughs> that this was a Badfinger song, and that, so I just I couldn't believe well, that. I can't forget this now that's Pete Ham singing. This is Pete's part of the song, which is the verse. But I guess that's just the way the story goes. And the first thing you'll huh. notice is that it's a little more raw. It's yeah. a little, it is a little more plotting and a little more ten, tentative sounding. You know, there's not nearly the delicacy or the confidence that Nilsson brings to it. Right. You know, and you can hear that they 
they're trying to blues up, you know, there's some bluesy guitar licks, you know, they just they just really weren't sure how best to to put this song out there to the world. And it of course So far the vocals are pretty tasty. I, I can't wait to hear the chorus. Yeah. I want to see how they And it's it's Tom who sings the chorus and you can tell he's not he's not really confident with his delivery. Oh, he didn't even... He's cutting it all short. Yeah. Oh, man. Right? Yeah, he's not even hitting those notes. Well, well the he, thing oh, is... He's hitting them, but he's just not holding yeah, he's them. Just not, yeah, he's not doing it the same way. Yeah. And and Tom Evans uh, sang all the high harmonies in the band. He was the McCartney yeah. uh, to, to Pete Ham's Lennon, I guess, if you want to... Uh, they both had really great voices that were very distinctly different. Yeah. Uh, Tom, Tom Evans could could sing super high, but you can tell that he's not fully on board. But the song is still there. It's it's unmistakably the same song. I mean, it is definitely. Uh, I mean, if there was no vocal, it would still be a. It would hold up. The chords are great. Yeah. So. Interesting. Fast forward about, crazy. about a year later uh, to 1971. Badfinger are in the studio, and 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 they're they're doing well. Their their career is on the up. You know, they've got hit singles. No matter what, from that second album, uh, wound up being a, a charting single. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember what it charted at, but it was it was a, a very successful single. They were touring the U.S. They were touring the world. Um, they were making a follow-up record, which would be called Straight Up, um, with Todd Rundgren and George Harrison both co-producing. Different- That's funny. I always thought that No Matter What was a Todd Rundgren song. It's, I- the, the, there's a similarity in style. Now, yeah. now it, it, of course, Todd Rundgren and Badfinger are both often credited as pioneering the power pop genre. Yeah. One of Badfinger's great enduring legacies in spite of all the tragedy, is that they are often credited with inventing power pop. Yeah. I think you could say the same about Rundgren, but it, it's a it's a genre, yeah. and it's a sound that both of them really uh, achieved. Yeah, gotcha. Um, so, about a year later, they're making their follow-up called Straight Up. Nilsson is in the progress of making what would be his crowning achievement, Nilsson Schmilson. Yeah. And he's at a party. He's at a party in Laurel Canyon, <laughs> that place. And the way he described it, he said he was at a party in Laurel Canyon, and it was about three a.m. And somebody put on a record, and everybody was really high, and he became transfixed by this song that he thought was a Beatles song, but he didn't know it to be a Beatles song. And then he thought, okay, well. Maybe it's one of those other like talking to some friends. Is this one of the one of those other Beatle bands? One of those guys they signed to Apple or something? Everybody's high. Nobody remembered. Yeah. Well, he remembered it a couple days later, and called a friend and said, "Hey, what was that song we were listening to? The one that sounds like McCartney but's not McCartney." Right. Which is funny because I always thought "Day After Day" was a McCartney song. Yeah. You always thought no matter what was a Rundgren song. Yeah. You know, it's like. Yeah. It's it's so funny. Lines how, intertwining. <laughs> right. Uh so his friend said, Oh, it was Badfinger. And Nilsson was just enamored. He was uh, infatuated with this song. So he found found the album, found their version of it, and sat down with Richard Perry and said, I want to do this song. So Nilsson, without asking him first, without asking he just him. is like, I'm going mean, to do and, it. And, and, I know he was going to say something, yes, but he's well, going to have so, to. So here's where the story he gets really He just re- didn't want to tell him Here's first. where the story gets really good. Ask for forgiveness so, rather than permission. So <laughs> Richard Perry and Harry Nilsson go about putting together this crack studio band. They originally had Rick Wakeman on piano, but he was too fussy with the part. And so yeah. they got Gary Wright, who went on to great success later. Anyway, it's a, it's a you know, the whole Nilsson Schmilson album, uh, <laughs> probably talk about that on its own yeah, podcast for sure. But so they make this grandiose, beautiful version of the song at Trident Studios. Well, it just so happens that Badfinger 
was also recording at Trident. And that wasn't where they normally recorded, but they were doing one of their tracks there with Rundgren, I believe. And But they Trident must have been a big complex. Because yeah. either way, Badfinger was unaware of this. Yeah. So what happened was when Harry got to the final mix of the song and they finally had it ready to go, he knew Badfinger was in the building and he sent somebody over to fetch them. And what he did was he sent out for food and wine and had this whole spread laid out and brought Badfinger into the control room and just said, I and they were like, what's going on here? And he was like, turned the lights down and played his version of the song to them. And they said they were just in tears. They just they were just floored. Yeah, just I would be too. And especially floored. with all the string arrangements, absolutely, and his vocal delivery, like the vocal delivery alone, man. If you wanted to, I would love to see if YouTube has a soloed out version of just the vocals because oh, I'm sure that would probably, make you cry. There's probably alone. an isolated track of that. <clears throat> so what Pete Ham said about it later is he said, "Wow, he did it the way we should have done it, but we were too paranoid to do it." Right. He was like, "He did it right." Yes. And so Pete Ham credited Nilsson and just said that's it that that's the definitive version of yeah, the song right and uh of course the rest is history the song exploded it was an international number one it was it, in the U.S. it was number one for five weeks straight it was uh Billboard ranked it as, as the number four song altogether of 1972 mm -hmm. so at this point you should think Badfinger is just they're on top of the world Financially, for sure, you would think that, and 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 keep in mind that at this time, straight up, their 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 third album sold a bunch. That in the end, Badfinger is estimated to have sold around fourteen million albums. Yeah. So when the story starts to turn sour, you're like, man, how does this happen? How does this happen? And and it's one of those horrible music industry stories. So straight up, they had two huge hit singles from that. Day After Day in Baby Blue. Pete Ham and Tom Evans, who were credited on the album, no, the, se the second album, No Dice, they were credited for writing the song. It appears on the album credits as Ham slash Evans. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And they won, an, which is a British award. It's called the Ivor Novello Songwriting Award. Right. And they won it for both the music and the lyric. Yeah. Uh, categories yeah so they both won two ivor novello songwriting awards for without you in 1972 but around this time badfinger entered into or it was actually before this but but around this time i think was where it was starting to go south they had been involved uh with a businessman named stan Polly, and stan Polly was a pretty shady dude who was running uh their management company and so this is just one of those classic horrible music industry stories of being swindled by bad management deal mm -hmm. badfinger had had their own manager for a long time a guy named bill collins who had been very loyal and with them for a while but the the, the question as to where bill collins played into all this has has always been a bit of a mystery Nobody really questions whether or not Stan Polly was a bad guy. He was a bad dude. There was tons of evidence. All the artists he had ever worked with were suspicious of him. Eventually, he, uh, well, he continued to do this <laughs> for many, many years yeah. uh, without a whole lot of repercussions. Right. But what, uh, what happened was he basically screwed them out of their money. And uh, I, I have this book uh, called Without You, which is uh, it's the tragedy of Badfinger, and it's a, it's a whole biography about it. But there are several stories in it that just kind of, they, they dumbfound you by how anybody could do this to a band that was seemingly so successful. So you've got a band... Uh, there, there's one thing that, uh, that that has been widely reported, and it was a financial statement from October of 1971, right when, I mean, you're talking about this is like, they're, 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 they've got, they've got three, song, charting yeah, singles three charting and, singles, and that's not even counting Without You, which they had written for Harry Nilsson, yeah. which was a number one all over the world. And in this financial statement, it has salaries and advances to their clients, in the num in the, for each of the Badfinger band members, 
$8,000 to Joey Mullen, $6,000 to Mike Gibbons, $6,000 to Tom Evans, and f- and under $6,000 to Pete Ham. The two guys who wrote Without You received the least amount of money in this statement. And Stan Polly <laughs> has $75,000 in this statement. And this is just one financial statement from this one period. <laughs> $75,000. So he was siphoning all of their money. And now where where Bill Collins, their longtime manager, played into this, I, I'm not 100% sure because that's never been really fully established. Is there a chance that he was maybe I think what happened, s- sort of screwing them too? And I think, just... well, what, what is known is that Bill Collins signed that statement. Yeah. He saw the statement. He knew something was going on. So... It's entirely possible, and he's dead now. Yeah. Many of these people are dead now, but uh, but it's entirely possible that he knew they were being screwed, and somehow he was getting a back end deal. He was uh, somehow Bill Collins was unable or unwilling to do anything to prevent the total screw job. So what happened was uh, bloody shameful. It is bloody shameful. Actually, and there's here there's another story in this book that I read that that this is just another thing that makes you go, "What the fuck?" Yeah. In 1972, Badfinger w- was playing Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall. The Enormo Dome. I mean, they're playing <laughs> Carnegie Hall. That's yeah. like as prestigious a gig as you could possibly get. Some of their Welsh, some of their Welsh friends flew to New York to see them play Carnegie Hall. Day after day was in the top five. Without you was at number one. And when they wanted to go to dinner together, the Badfinger guys had no money, and their friends had to buy them dinner because they didn't have money to buy dinner. That's just ridiculous. How is that even possible? <laughs> I mean, like, even Mook gave us a ten dollar <laughs> per diem. <laughs> no, I mean, just like I just can't even fathom how that could happen. Um, yeah, dude, that's crazy. And and whether any of this is exaggerated or not, I can't say for sure. But it, but that's the story that was in this book, and it's just heartbreaking. And the story continues to get even worse. Uh, when Apple Records finally folded in 1973, you know, Apple was a terrible. It was terribly mismanaged. The Beatles sure. didn't know how to be businessmen, yeah. and 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 the whole thing. It was just, Apple was. Uh, it was a great idea that floundered. Uh, Badfinger then entered into a really horrible deal with Warner Brothers that Stan Polly engineered, and over the course of the next two years, they ran into all kinds of contractual uh, issues that yeah. that delayed their records that caused their budgets to be cut, that caused their earnings to be garnished, like like everything that could go wrong for bad. They, they, had, they had album releases delayed. They had um, their, their advertising budgets were pulled. Like, like every sort of promotional effort made on behalf of Badfinger, was just kind of removed right. uh, <clears throat> due to this bad business deal they had. And Stan Pauly was continuing to make a ton of money. So it all came to a head in the spring of 1975. Pete Ham was basically destitute. All of their checks had bounced. Like they, uh, like he, had, he had tried to cash a couple checks that he had gotten from, uh, from the management and they had bounced, and he was just—he believed that he was broke. He had a pregnant girlfriend and her young son he was living with, and one night after after believing that he had absolutely no money and that Stan Polly had robbed him blind and that he was going to be financially uh, fucked forever, he hung himself. <laughs> Pete Ham at 27, this gentle soul, wonderful talent, amazing singer, great guitar player. This guy, and he had played on, he played on the concert for Bangladesh with George Harrison, and he played on All Things Must Pass, and he had played on some Ringo records, and like he had done so much in in his, in, in before the age of 27, and 
at this point. Another one gone at 27. Yes, yeah, he's part of the 27 club. And, and, but entirely because he had been fucked over by this businessman, uh, by this manager. And in his very brief suicide note that he left for his pregnant girlfriend, he mentioned Stan Polly. Yeah. And he said, Stan Polly is a soulless bastard and I will take him with me. Yeah. And it's just heartbreaking. So really that was the end of Badfinger, but they kind of managed to linger on a little after that. They broke up for a little while, but then regrouped with a, a, a replacement member or two in the late 70s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just in some hope of rekindling the flame. But this uh, story gets worse. <laughs> Good God. Tom Evans who was Pete's songwriting partner and best friend, kept uh, trying and trying, uh, but eventually ran into uh, a major, developed a major rift with Joey Molland, who was the uh, lead guitar player in the band. Mm -hmm. And Joey uh, has been the source of a lot of controversy over the years. He was married to a woman who a lot of people believed was... (laughs) Uh, I, not to misuse this, but but a Yoko type, yeah. you know. Uh, apparently, she was interfering a lot in yeah. band business, and so Joey and Tom ran afoul of each other, and they started uh, they started touring with separate Badfinger groups, both trying to utilize the name, and they were disputing uh, over royalties and. Joey was trying to get in on the songwriting royalties for Without You, and there was this whole dispute about we had an agreement that everybody was going to make money off of this song. Well, it's like, where's all the money going anyway? There, but it, yeah, but but Joey wasn't on the original recording, right? He's on I the thought recording. it was like he's a bunch the re- of studio on, people. No, he's on the original recording that Badfinger did. Oh, uh, okay. But 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 the, but, I, but yeah. the song was never credited to Joey Molland or Bill Collins or okay. Stan Polly or Mike Gibbons, the other remaining it was it was a it was a Pete and Tom composition. I guess what I was thinking is is the the, the version that made the most money. The Nilsson version. Yes. That was like Keltner it, and yes, totally. Wright and, and all those other... And it wouldn't pop- have anything to do with Joey Mullen, but what, what, what these other parties had were trying to argue was that they had all... Entered, they uh, they had an a agreement. agreement. They had an agreement that they would all split the money equally, uh-huh. and 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 the story continues later. But we anyway. had a verbal agreement on defuzz. <laughs> 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 Where's my royalties? <laughs> Nobody will get our jokes. Okay. Defuzz. That was the name of our first oh, joint br- composition as a band together in, in the Olispa days. Britain, Nick, the, sum, the summer, the summer of '99. Uh, so it all culminates with. A big fight between Tom Evans and Joey Molland in November of 1983, and then Tom Evans hangs himself. Good gravy! Two the two ha- what's with the hanging and bad the two songwriters who wrote this incredible song, both dead by suicide, both hanging. Oh, it's because you can't get a gun in England, man. You can it, get a rope, it, apparently. So the the thing that kills me. And it has always haunted me about this, and you know, and, and just me as a as a as a as a side observer, is that these two guys they they killed themselves because they were broke. Yeah, they killed themselves because they had no money. They had been swindled. They had been completely chewed up and spit out by the music business by. A, a small number, if not only a couple of really uh, nefarious individuals. But if they had lived, they both would have been very wealthy men. Very wealthy. Because as, as uh, time bore out, eventually th- there was so much litigation that followed in the wake of both of their deaths right. about... Who wrote what and who was entitled to what as far as the royalties to not only Without You, which was the biggest earning song, but also the rest of the catalog, the rest of the Badfinger catalog. Um, the bottom line is these two guys would have been rich. They would have been 
very wealthy guys. Even if even if the court cases had been settled and they wound up having to split all of it with all of the other parties, they still would have made enough money to be very comfortable. And the songs have been used, and like you said, bad uh, baby blue, uh, you know, used in uh, used in Breaking Bad. I mean, Pete Ham. It, it, the, those songs have endured. They've been played on classic rock radio stations all over the world for the past fifty years. Not to mention the covers. I yes. mean, so many cover versions, yes. and, and one and, we're going to get and, to in a little and, while. Right, yeah, and so it's just a terrible tragedy uh, that that it happened, and uh, and then of course the uh, re- remaining members of Badfinger and their manager Bill Collins, uh, even after they had broken ties with Stan Polly and his horrible situation. They uh, were tied up in litigation for years and years and years with the estates of Tom Evans and Pete Ham, right. trying to argue that they had had an agreement early on that they would split everything equally. And well, you know, just I, it, it, did you pull this from the book? Some no, book, no. The, the, I, well, I, there was a bunch of stuff in the book, but the book was written in the late '90s before all of it had been resolved. The part and, that sticks out to me: the three surviving members claim that the arrangement was to be twenty-five for a songwriter, and the remaining seventy-five percent split five ways among all four members of Badfinger and their manager, who they were calling a full member of the band, although he does not perform. That seems crazy. It seems ass backwards. Let you would me think it should be something. the other way around. Let me tell 75 you to the songwriter <laughs> and 25% yeah. to the people that played it. Let me tell you it. something. No songwriter on earth would agree to that deal. No way, no dude. Song, I mean, I, no That's songwriter insanity. in the world would agree to 25% I, you know, you versus talk, 75 to the rest of the band. These, like, <laughs> like Basically, the, the, the two ways, I guess you know more about this than me, but you have your songwriting credit, and then you have your mechanical royalty. Right. It, so the mechanical royalty is if be you played a on it. Fifty fifty deal. It so, should fifty percent of it should go to the writers. That's right. that's the way it should be. And in the end, after all the litigation and fighting and there were there were wild claims and, and there it's still somewhat disputed. Like even re- researching it on the internet, you can find message boards where there are certain people who side with Joey Molland and his arguments, which was, Hey, I was there and I it's the drummers out there. It's what it is. <laughs> well, it's the there, Liberty Devitos. There's a lot of there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of argument that Joey Molland and his wife were both very greedy and trying to hone in on something that was not rightfully theirs. It was it it, it is not really disputed that Pete Ham and Tom Evans wrote the song. Um, at one point, Joey Molland argued, "Well, I changed the word from live to give." And therefore, I had a lyric. It wasn't Joey, actually, who claimed it. It was his wife. (laughs) But if you listen to Tom Evans' original demo called I Can't Live, which is on YouTube, the word give is very clearly present. Joey Mullen didn't change that. We're thinking you should say, baby, it can't get much better. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so it was just one of those deals where, uh, you know, they were arguing, oh, that, Pete and Tom tried to change the agreement because it was such a cash cow before they died, uh, whereas nobody can come to any sort of agreement. Eventually, the courts upheld uh, the 50% arrangement with the Evans and Ham estates getting the 50% of the royalties and the remaining 50% to be divided amongst the rest. Um, I mean, honestly, the the moral of the story. I mean, I'm looking at reading all this, and I'm just it gives me a headache looking at all the different numbers and all the people fighting. And it's just obvious that always do a contract. You remember how we would never have contracts in the old days, and it was just like that bit us like the oh my god, the Lazona Rosa show, that fiasco at the end of the night. We there was so much money. We got we got bad fingered that night. <laughs> <laughs> Bad fingers. I'm not commenting on any of this. <laughs> I'm not gonna tell. I'm not gonna tell the the public who badfingered us. But that wasn't the first time we would get badfingered by that person. You know, the, it's just sad that <laughs> we got that... bad fisted the next time. <laughs> it's just sad that this sort of shit happens in the music industry. Uh, artists get swindled, and it's it's common. You hear about it all the time. I mean. 
but but rather than you know you know in the case of Billy Joel, you hear like, oh, well, I just wasn't paying attention to my finances, and I trusted this guy who was my wife's brother who completely stole millions of my dollars. Billy Joel goes on to live and has you know a great career, and he still can pack stadiums and all this. Well, these two guys they killed themselves over it, yeah. and it's just. It's just an unthinkable tragedy. Well, okay, so now let's let's can we talk about Mariah? Yeah, yeah, totally. Let's okay, so so yeah, it's it's completely sad. And then insult to injury, uh, Mariah Carey in 1994, she covers the song, and I think most of the world, like rock and roll player, like rock and roll fanatics, obviously know this was not her song, but I think most of the world thinks it's her song. Yeah, that's, it's just a it's a, it's a generational thing, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah of I mean, course, yeah. a generational, and also just the fact that that one probably was the most far-reaching version as far as worldwide success. Yeah. So, um, she just it's like it it would have just been another dumping of gold on top of these two guys if they were just alive. And 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 I truly believe that if they had lived, they would have resolved the litigation a lot sooner because this court case kept going and going and going through the nineties, through the Mariah Carey stuff. And then in the end, even though they the, their estates were the quote unquote victors of the whole deal, through various loopholes, uh, the majority of that money wound up being split amongst all the other people involved and all the other and i'm not saying that the band members didn't deserve anything yeah. but they didn't deserve the bulk of it they didn't no. deserve more of it than the estates of the songwriters and, and yeah no that's that is that is a that's a verbal agreement so, for you so and the, bad the, management the, the the final thing that i want to talk about with regard to it is its place in pop culture and I, there are a couple while you're talking about this, I'm going to yeah, play let, the Mariah Carey version. Okay, let's do that. So, because truthfully, like I remember this being a song of hers, uh, but like I remember also watching American Idol, or I'm pretty sure it was American Idol, and this song has been covered on there numerous times. And I think all of those kids think they're covering Mariah Carey, right, and, yes. and they're definitely singing her version, like vocally delivering. Yes. Like her version, but I it's never, just hilarious never, to me that they I, I never, no one did, did Randy Jackson ever stop and say, Hey, <laughs> yo, dog, you know who wrote this? <laughs> Peter Ham. <laughs> I mean, dude, I mean, she a, can it, sing, man. Yeah, she can definitely sing. I never, I never really paid much attention to this version of the song just because I never really had a thing for listening to Mariah Carey, you know. I, know. I, 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 I have always preferred the Nilsson version to anything else. Although I do like the Badfinger version just because I love listening to their records. It's know? funny about that though because I feel like if she was packaged in a different package like let's say on the outside she looked like Amy Mann wouldn't you pay more attention to her because I feel like she just comes off so cheesy on the outside yeah. that I'm just turned off by immediately. And per, I, perhaps. You know what I'm saying? Yes, like, I'm, I'm sure that has some influence on it too. But I, I think another part of it that I don't really love is just the vocal calisthenics. Okay, I mean, now, but she's really she's paying homage to the this is, Nilsson this version is most right there. Well, she's yeah, oh that, that little change. But yeah, there's a there's, she right. she is being pretty respectful to the melody, but but it's it's that showing off thing, and you know the Aguilera. I always refer to it as "Don't Aguilera this," you know, like <laughs> or or R and B drummer hi hat that thing. Like, <laughs> no, that's Dave Matthews. I always say, oh, yeah. I always say, don't don't Dave Matthews that hi hat, dude. You know. <laughs> no, there's no question, and uh, like the the note choices in that that first chorus were, you know, embellished. No question. Yeah, there. Right it, there too. That's that's kind of why I. That's kind of why I don't dig listening to her is because there's just too much showing off vocally. And, of course, she's an amazing singer. Yeah, I mean, I like I like the way she's singing that, but you're right. It's, yeah, see, going to up me, to, to the me, fifth this just or sounds sixth like, or whatever. It just sounds like American Idol or something. I don't want to listen to that shit. I want to hear, I, I love purity and the melody. Yeah, I and it. And the melody itself. And that's what I love about Nilsson's version is Nilsson really... 
drives it home and he really kills the vocal and so to me that's that's the definitive version and i'd be really curious to to dig up some other covers of it and hear what other people have done with it because i'm sure i mean if it's been covered 180 times there's bound to be a guar version (laughs) there's bound to be at least some interesting version out there that we haven't heard so uh unfortunately i don't have that's quite any ins- that. Yeah, I don't have any insight on that at the moment, but I highly recommend go dig up other versions of Without You and see who's done quality ones. No doubt. So the the thing I was going to talk about was... Uh, Pop culture. Uh, yes, and, and really I only have a couple of examples that I can think of, but I, I can't help but always think of these two movies really one more than the other but there are two films that this song appears in it's it, it probably appears in other movies too but i i always think of uh i don't know if you've seen the remake of vacation the where it's uh ed helms playing the adult oh, yeah. rusty and Chris, christina applegate yes that's the, Dude, the, the kid with the regret tattoo yeah yeah, yeah. regret I, yeah i think that is a i think that is a really underrated film it got panned by the critics at the time but it's pretty funny yeah, yeah. and it, it's uh, Aubrey and I, I saw watch it, it all the time sure. and, and we laugh our asses off but there is a great scene where Charlie Day is the rafting instructor he's the tour guide the river rafting tour guide <laughs> his his fiance breaks up with him on the phone right before they take their rafting trip and they play without you right as he goes over the waterfalls the Nilsson version yes yeah and it's so and it's all in like slow mo, and it's that's so, hilarious. So I'm that, definitely that, gonna that go back kills and watch me, that. and it's because you put this tragic sounding song into a comedy context, but it's over a suicide scene. Yeah, and it's like, oh my god! So again, you have it in this suicide context, even in even in the grand comedy of it all. It's like, oh my god, that's kind of creepy. You wonder if the director knew that what he was doing there. Uh, fully maybe but here's the other one that i was going to mention and this is the one that hits a lot harder for me in 2001 or 2002 roger avery who co-wrote pulp fiction with quentin tarantino directed a film called the rules of attraction now i I don't know the film okay this is a pretty underrated gem of a movie it's really really dark and it is i mean dude every character in the film is despicable it's one of those movies where you can't you can't really like any single character. Totally. And the, the only one that you might have a little bit of connection to is the one who kills herself, and they play this song over that scene, and it's this whole scene where she kills herself in a bathtub, yeah. and it is just gut-wrenching. That's and, terrible. And well, the, the, the title, Without You, I mean, it's kind of lends itself totally, to totally. the I mean, situation. It is. It is absolutely... And, yeah. and but just knowing that the two guys who wrote it did this to themselves, and then and then it continues to be used in pop culture in the context of these suicide scenes. One of them is meant to be comedy, but the, but the in the rules of attraction, that scene is. I mean, it is the hardest scene in that movie to watch. <coughs> and, I'm gonna have to uh, go back and watch that. I, I watched it recently. I watched it a, b- a couple of months ago. And uh, and you know, and it's it's a weird movie. It's a yeah. really weird film, but it but it holds up and uh, it's clever. Yeah, is Jennifer Goodwin in that movie? Mm, I don't think is so. Is it like a bunch of people that are like not really? Uh, is is Paul or Vanderbeek in that movie? Not yes, Paul, James Vanderbeek. James yes, Vanderbeek. Yes, Dawson from Dawson's yes. Creek. Okay, so and, I, and, I and man, that is a it is a dark turn he takes. And and actually, really, I kind of respect his acting chops because in this movie he's. Uh, he, he, what is the, the basic of the, or the, the gist of the movie is it's people giving advice on how to, isn't there one person who's trying to teach another person how to get laid and, uh, there's, there's a little bit of that. The whole thing was a novel written by Brett Easton Ellis, uh, who also wrote American Psycho and the Patrick Bateman character from American Psycho is directly related to the Sean Bateman character that James Vanderbeek plays. Okay. Plays like his brother. Maybe they oh, weird. They, they never we- really make they, there's a, there's a reference in there, but they never really make clear what their relationship is. Oh, I wow. assume they're brothers. Yeah. But anyway, that movie is is worth digging up. Uh, directed by Roger. That Avery. sounds like what Qu- Quentin Tarantino would do. How he has <laughs> characters from one like wasn't Alabama referenced yeah, yes, in another yes, movie? Yes, there's tons of that yeah. overlap in his totally. uh, in his 
uh, script. But anyway, Without You has a very, <laughs> very dark place in that film. And that's uh, and I whenever I hear the song now, I can't help but visualize that scene. Yeah. So anyway, the the song lives on, uh, even though the 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 tragedy of the writers uh, may uh, be a footnote in history. That song is larger than life itself. You know. Maybe I'll hire you to come play it on piano when I hang myself. That's awful. <laughs> that's just awful. <laughs> Why well, am I friends with you? <laughs> God. Well, dude, this one, um, again, is I, I. this one is just such an insane backstory. This is exactly why we do this podcast. Yeah, I knew this would be a great song to, for us to talk about, even yeah. though it would be just... <laughs> it just and, makes you shake your and head. And some so. of... Uh, we know that... I was I was worried that this podcast might be kind of dumb because people can go on the internet and find out all of this stuff on their own. But I feel like you take it down you go to the dark web or the books and well, you find I, the I, the information is, that you can't just find on the internet yeah i mean a lot of it is just uh, just being kind of a nerd for for music history and for sure and, and uh being a fan you know i mean uh, most of the well i think all the songs that we've talked about so far are songs that i am a fan of absolutely yeah so next week we're gonna go we're gonna continue that trend of being songs that you love but of course i love this one as well um we're gonna do shine on oh you crazy diamond indeed oh then we will we will have lots to talk about and you'll probably hear some some music selection or music samples from cholt on the keyboard sure uh and the black strat i might have to bust out the black strat all right dude well thank you and uh good times all right thanks tom Thank you.